Hey there, I am Dan Klein. Uh, don't know if this is for 7investing now or for the 7investing podcast, but I am recording uh, with uh, Francesca Ortigan. Should have asked her first how to pronounce her name. She's a data scientist for Clever Real Estate. Did I get that right, Francesca? Uh, yeah, close enough. <laughs> close enough. My wife's name is Celine and has been called Celine every pretty much by any person I've ever met. So I try to be very respectful of that. Uh, she co-authored, and of course, I am getting a phone call, which is super annoying. She co-authored her company's 2021 study, uh, the Millennial Home Buyer Report. Uh, that looked at how millennials feel about buying a home amidst a rapidly changing market. First of all, welcome to the program. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get started on the top lines of this survey, does the housing market change like every month now? Like I, I live in Florida. <laughs> And Miami was like the hottest place on earth. And then I just read something that like, yeah, people are going back to New York. It's not that hot anymore. Like I asked this because I have a condo for sale and nobody's bought it. So I'm a little bit, I'm getting a little bit nervous about the housing market. Um, you know, it does seem like it, it changes daily almost uh, depending on where you are. But um, we do see national trends. I think it's just, you know, the time of the year makes a huge difference. You know, during the winter, we all want to be in Miami and during the summer, maybe you don't want to be in Miami. Um, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's kind of what it said. Like during the like sort of mild, it's 80 degree winter. Everyone's like, Miami's great. And then like, it starts to be like 103 during the day and humidity is like, I don't know, 108%. Uh, but right. for some reason it won't rain. Like, yeah, it, I, I, I totally understand that. We're going to come back to some housing trend things at the end. I want to talk about the millennial home buyer report. I am, I am not a millennial. I'm, I'm 47 years old. So I am outside this. I've often noted that a lot of the things they apply to millennials were the exact same things they talked about with Generation X, which is my generation. Uh, so I, I don't really know that this is necessarily super different behavior, but what were the top line findings of your report here? Yeah, one thing, it might not be that different, but there are some things, you know, we'll come back to that millennials have experienced that maybe Gen X or boomers didn't um, in their early 20s. But I, mostly what we found is that millennials are, Strat for cash, which isn't surprising. They're pretty young still. Um, and we've been through two recessions now since they entered the workforce. So um, they've kind of had that against them. Um, and so they're they're willing to buy kind of uh, suboptimal properties and do that in suboptimal ways in order to kind of uh, be able to be homeowners. So when you say suboptimal, we'll, we'll, we'll hit the two versions of suboptimal here. You mean like a fixer-upper, like something, yeah. like I, I had a colleague who bought a house in DC, a former colleague, that he intended to fix up and then got a door knock and sold it for significantly more money than he paid for it before he'd done a stitch of work. So is, is that what you mean by suboptimal? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So fixer-uppers, um, things that might have, um, you know, larger issues like foundation issues or... Uh, cracks in the basement, things like that, that, that sometimes you think might be easy fixes, but tend to cost a lot more money um, or be a lot more work than you anticipate. That, and when you say buy them in suboptimal ways, do you mean sort of questionable mortgage products or, or different <laughs> funding sources? Um, no, what we found with this study, particularly asking millennials this year, was that a lot were willing to buy sight unseen. Um, and just with photos or videos, which if you've ever searched for a house um, and looked at photos and then saw the house in, in person, you know that um, those aren't always the best quality or the best, uh, um, 
I guess, depiction of what the house actually looks like. Um, so I don't know that that's the best option, um, but we're in a seller's market right now. So buyers really have to scramble to get the house that they want. We, we rented the house we're living in, not entirely sight unseen. Uh, my wife saw it, but I didn't. And we knew we wanted to live in this community. My landlord had four offers in the first night. I'd already filled out the community paperwork because we had wow. made an offer on a, on a rental uh, in another part of the community. So we were ready to go, had everything in within half an hour of it being listed. And the only reason we got the property is my landlord Googled me, saw Seven Investing Now and went, hey, that guy is probably trustworthy. He talks about finance. He's probably going to pay his rent. So it's hyper competitive, which makes it all the stranger that my very well-priced, beautiful condo hasn't sold. But I will say buying something sight unseen is terrifying. Have you ever stayed in Airbnb where the yeah. pictures look great? Like I stayed in one where the pictures, which must've been taken in 1978, looked amazing. And when I got there, it was basically like a, like a decrepit dump. Like there were, there were like 30 people staying in the next condo and like cooking a goat. Like it was horrifying. <laughs> that is terrifying. You, um, I actually it? just stayed in an Airbnb a couple of weeks ago and it was, it wasn't bad, but it was not what I anticipated going into. And it was literally a log cabin in the middle of a neighborhood, which was kind of cool, but not what I was expecting at all. <laughs> I would say my track record is 50-50. And some of those 50 on the negative were just little things. Like I stayed one place that was very, like a tiny house kind of space. And in the picture, it had a small desk. In reality, it didn't. And like, that doesn't seem like it would matter, but I had to work. So it was like right. really hard to work on the, the tiny bed. Like, but let, let's get back to this here. So home prices are up and they're maybe still climbing in a lot of places. Is that forcing people to act faster, especially with millennials and scaring them away? Or is it making them go, geez, I better get in now? It seems like people are thinking they need to get in right now. Um, there's this this belief that the, the prices are going to continue to rise and houses are going to be more and more unaffordable um, as we move in time. And so people just want to buy now if they were planning on buying in the next year or so, um, which may or may not be the case. Our expectation is that that should even out, you know, after the pandemic kind of isn't putting so many lockdowns on um or restrictions in place. Um, and there's gonna be more houses on the market and we'll see those prices kind of slowly go back to what we consider normal, which is still kind of inflated and unaffordable. But um, yeah, it does seem to be pushing people to buy faster. Um, and it's putting this, this competition on buyers too, where they're having to um, make decisions really quickly because houses are flying off the market in a lot of places really fast. I've seen crazy things like write a letter to the seller so they can, you know, you know, know you and, and, and emotionally want to sell to you. Like this to me is exhausting. Whoever bids the most for my condo that seems credible, that's who's getting it. Unless right. there's like some amazing piece, you know, someone's like a war hero or something. Maybe, maybe they're a couple grand less. I'll go with it. What about interest rates? Like, so when I got my first mortgage, my interest rate was about 8%. When my parents got their first mortgage, it was like triple that. So for me, the difference between three and a half percent or two and a half percent really doesn't matter. But is this driving millennials who are, you know, they've been living with historically low mortgage rates for a really long time now. Yeah, um, it is surprisingly. And, you know, 
the historically low mortgage rates were true before the pandemic, and then they just kept going down and going down. Um, and that's a driving factor. Um, we asked millennials whether that was something that motivated them to buy. And this year, it was um, about 40% said that it was motivating them to buy right now. And that number was only 11% last year. So having those even lower mortgage rates is a motivator always, but much more this year than it normally is. Yeah. So you talked about people buying houses sight unseen. Like I would do like, again, where I live now, my wife saw it and I trusted that she was going to know if I would hate it. And like, that was pretty much that. So if like my mom saw it and I didn't, that would be different. But what other pandemic driven things are you seeing uh, for millennials in the housing market? Yeah. So we're seeing, um, the, the side unseen, we're seeing that millennials are um, looking for different types of homes. So they're looking actually for larger homes than they were last year. Um, the average size was about 2,400 square feet is what millennials are looking for now compared to about 1,700 last year. So it's significantly larger. Um, and I think that's probably... Um, an artifact of sitting in your house all day for <laughs> for a whole year now. Um, people just want more space and they don't just want larger houses. They're looking for um, more outdoor space and dedicated office space, things that we didn't see quite as much of last year. So they're like twice as likely to look for dedicated office space and a third more likely to look for uh, larger or nicer outdoor spaces. Um, so we can make some assumptions about what might happen in the next few years as millennials are, might continue to move out into the suburbs away from urban areas to get what they're wanting. I, I don't think you can get 2,400 square feet with a nice backyard for a reasonable price in most metropolitan areas, uh, or at least not the downtown kind of urban areas. So I want to talk about that. I was going to bring that up later, but, but I yeah. actually think this is a false trend. I think it's accelerating the normal cycle of like people get married, have a kid and need more space. Mm -hmm. But my wife and I, we have one kid. So when we moved to West Palm Beach, Florida, we have one 17 year old. We downsized from about 2,400 square feet, two car garage to a 1,300 square foot downtown condo because I viewed the pool and the gym and all the restaurants and the movie theater and all the things you could do as part of the amenities and living space. Once mm -hmm. the pandemic hit, those things became essentially useless. It, it, it became difficult to take a walk as they accelerated some constructions. You obviously couldn't go to the movies, even like, you know, Starbucks was takeout only. So my habit of like go work for a couple of hours. But I actually think post pandemic, don't you think younger generations are gonna be attracted to the lure of the city? All the stuff's in the city, all the sports teams play in the city. That's where the restaurants are. I, I, do you believe that this is a long-term, like we all wanna live in the bucolic suburbs trend? Um, I don't know. That's a good point that now that we don't have those things or they've been taken away from us for so long, we, people might want that a little bit more than they did previously. Um, we have seen trends in previous years in 2018 and 20 or 2019 and 2020, when we asked millennials, um, they were more interested in like safe neighborhoods, um, and neighborhoods that would be great for kids than they were for, or than they were interested in like walkability to restaurants, things like that. So I think that there, there's going to be at least for the next, I would say five to 10 years, millennials are going to be having kids. So that's going to be kind of the forefront of their, um, their requirements for, for housing. Um, but I think maybe the younger millennials who don't have kids or aren't planning on having kids, um, 
might be more interested in those like urban areas as the pandemic lockdowns lift and, and these are things that they've been missing out on, they might stay longer. Um, I know I'm really interested in like going to a restaurant. So if I was living downtown for the last year, I would want to stay just so I can experience that again. So, so I, I, I understand this cycle. I have watched all of my friends go through, they lived in New York City, then they had the kid. When the kid can no longer sleep in a drawer, they have to move outside of New York City yeah. to get space. I, I went through that myself. I get it. I moved from New York to Connecticut. Then we moved to Florida. But that being said, where I live now, and I'm, I'm in a dedicated studio space, which is the guest room in, in, our, in our newly rented home, it's great for the pandemic, mm -hmm. post-pandemic, I know that the fact that I can walk to Target is not going to be as appealing as the fact that I used to be able to walk to 40 bars and 100 restaurants. Right. Um, I do think that pendulum will, will sling back. I'm also seeing here um, vacation homes, especially ones with, uh, with amenities, prices have kind of skyrocketed. Uh, that's not millennials. That's obviously older folks. But I feel like the people who decided they wanted to like have easy access to a sun deck and a pool at any cost might rethink that. Um, but again, I'm going totally off topic here. So 70% of those surveyed said they were willing to buy a fixer upper, mm -hmm. but almost half of the people you surveyed were worried about unexpected costs. Those two things seem in, in Congress. If I am buying a fixer upper, I've watched those shows, like whether it's fixer upper or any of the others, there's always that moment in the show. And I understand that it's manufactured, where like the person comes to you and like, I know you wanted to uh, redo the attic, but there's a pipe that needs to be replaced and it's $8,000 and then the family gets real sad. And at the end, it's amazing anyway. But how do you balance those two things? Like I know I could not handle the mental stress of a fixer upper. Oh gosh, no. Uh, when I was house searching just a couple of years ago, I didn't want anything to do with anything that was more than 30 years old. So I didn't want to deal with, you know, having to deal with any of those fixer upper type of things. Um, but millennials tend to be okay with that um, in general, I think because those houses tend to be more affordable upfront. Um, so I think that there's a kind of a cost benefit of, I don't want these hidden costs. So maybe if I buy a house where there's like <laughs> obvious costs <laughs> that I know what I'm getting into. Um, whereas if you just buy an old house that looks nice, you might not think about like the little things like I'm going to have to replace the AC in a couple of years because it's 30 years old um, or something along those lines. Whereas if you have planned DIY projects, um, that might be something you can build into your budget over time. Um, it is perplexing though. I, I think there's, there's a lot of cost um, kind of things that millennials have to do where they're thinking I can't afford, you know, a $500,000 home, which is what we're looking at in a lot of metro areas. Um, but I can afford this $200,000 home, even though I'm going to have to fix it up over time, it might cost more, but maybe I'll get more money out of it or something like that. Is some of that too, like younger people feel more ability to put sweat equity in it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's that and maybe they haven't had to deal with that. So they don't know what the work or money is that's going to actually go into a DIY home project. Um, whereas older generations, we ask boomers the same question and, and they tend to stay away from that. They don't want anything to do with a, a fixer upper. Um, they've actually, the boomers that we asked this this year were slightly more likely to say that they'd buy a fixer upper. And I think that's because home prices are, are inflated right now. Um, 
but but millennials have always been around 70 percent yeah so I am Dan Klein. I'm talking to Francesca Ortigan from Clever Real Estate. We're talking about millennials. We're talking about the real estate market. Uh, this is a lot of fun. I will say, if you're watching this and you're thinking about buying a house, and Francesca, jump in if, you, if you've had this experience. Whatever you think will go wrong, it will be worse and it will be sooner. Uh, so we own a very modest vacation property in the Orlando area. We don't even rent it. We just let our friends use it. Um, so a, a wide variety of people have stayed there. And when we bought it, we went, okay, there are some cosmetic things we want to do. We'll do those as neat, you know, as money allows. And, and we've done those. And we had someone look at the roof and someone look at the AC and they said, yeah, you know, you got a few years left in the roof, the AC, you know, it's fine, but it might probably in the next three years, within three months, I did a new roof and a new AC because we got hit by a storm that ruined the roof and the AC just died one day. I think that is fairly typical. So I'm speaking to millennials or anyone buying a home watching this that you have to prepare for the worst. So I was lucky enough to not have to deal with student debt. My wife had a little bit, but we were, we were able to pay it off before, I think right around when we bought our first home, which sounds crazy, was a co-op in, in a Hartsdale, New York, which would now sell for like 450 grand. We bought it for 80 grand, sold wow. it for 105, thought we were geniuses. Then 9-11 <laughs> happened and everyone moved to the suburbs and it was, I saw it in the paper having sold for over $400,000. Uh, but Student loan debt, is that impacting whether or not millennials, it seems like it's just, explode. in fact, it has exploded with younger generations. It has, yeah. So the average loan debt right now for people who have loans is almost $40,000, um, which is a lot of money. I mean, that's half of what you can spend on a house in some areas. So um, it, it definitely slows people's buying down. So millennials, we asked... Um, or I guess not just millennials, but anybody who had student debt, we asked a couple of years ago whether that impacted their ability to buy a home. And people said that they put off home buying by an average of seven years um, due to student loan debt. Um, so, and we're seeing that in the trends. Millennials are just going to buy houses now in their early 30s, whereas older generations were buying in their 20s. Um, so we have seen that like kind of in the actual trends. Um, and a lot of that's just they don't have the disposable income. They have four to four hundred to eight hundred dollars going towards loans every month, and that's if just one person has loans. Imagine like both of the people in the couple have loans, um, and so that just slows that down, and it it makes it I think mentally harder to take on an additional long term cost. Um, so it's not just stopping them from actually being able to get a mortgage, but it's you know mentally it's hard to say yeah I, I can have. $40,000 in loans and $250,000 in, in a mortgage. Um, so we've definitely seen that. And we asked students or uh, millennials this round, whether the loan forgiveness would help them. Um, and we used the $10,000 number that Biden um, had been using at the time. Um, and they said about 80% of those with student loans so that that would be really helpful. Um, just the $10,000 forgiveness and that they would be able to put down more on a down payment or get a more expensive home even um, if they had that uh, forgiveness at the time. 
I don't expect that to happen. And honestly, I have very mixed feelings on it. My, my wife put herself through a PhD uh, all yep. on scholarship and still had some loans to deal with and paid them off. I'm not entirely sure we should be rewarding people who took on debt knowingly. I know that's not popular. I'm yeah. all in favor of like, if you borrowed X amount, you can only have to pay Y amount back. You shouldn't have to borrow 80 and pay back, you know, 160, yeah. um, you know, borrow 80, pay back a hundred. That, that, that seems like a reasonable premium. You don't want to get too political here. Um, what are millennials worry about when it comes to buying a home? I know like when I first bought a home, it was just, will I live here long enough to justify it? Cause I'm a journalist by trade, which is a nomadic profession, as I'm sure you know. Right. Um, yeah, they're concerned about a lot of different things. Um, one of the main things is the unexpected costs that we talked about previously. Um, so the potential for something to go wrong, which, as you mentioned, it probably will. Um, I actually built my house and there are things we've put money into that I didn't expect with a brand new home already. You know, you move into a house and there's costs associated with just about anything. Um, so uh, other concerns are declining home values. So they're worried that they'll buy their house and then it won't be worth as much as they paid, um, which I think is a reasonable fear right now with housing prices really inflated. Um, it also makes sense considering they lived through the, the housing crisis kind of right at the beginning of the, their entering the workforce. A lot of millennials did anyway. So that's kind of a fear that's just going to be on our minds, I think, for a while. Um, and I think that if you buy right now, I think housing prices are either going to stay the same or drop a little bit in the next couple of years. If you hold on to the house for long enough, that should wash out. But I think it's a reasonable fear um, that they're having there. And that obviously depends on markets and, uh, you know, it can vary by market to market. I'm going to ask one last question here and then give you a chance to, to throw out anything else you wanted to throw out. Work from home or remote work has allowed a lot of people to move away from the city, away from the office. That might be to another city. It's not always necessarily, you know, to a farm in the middle of nowhere. I have a lot of friends uh, that moved away from the Washington DC area offices that they work in and they're still commutable to the office, but they're probably only gonna go back once or twice. Do you think work from home and this is gonna be a long-term trend? Because I actually have very mixed feelings. I think there's a lot of benefit to being in an office. We're a remote team by design, um, but we still all wanna see each other a lot and we'll, we'll do that when we can. Do you think this is actually gonna like make Florida and Texas and places that are, are cheaper and have high quality of life more desirable? Or that it's really, well, I'll let you talk about it. I'm sorry, I've gone on too long. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit of everything. So it might actually just kind of wash itself out on average. But I think that people who live in really expensive areas like San Francisco or New York City might see the benefit of leaving. Um, if you're, you know, spending $3,000 a month on a, you know, shoe box that you live in, uh, you might see the benefit of moving to Texas or the Midwest or Florida. Um, if you can work from there and especially if you can make the same amount that you're making in San Francisco and not taking a cost of living hit, um, there's definitely a benefit there. But I think also kind of on the other side of that, as we talked about a little bit previously, there's this appeal to the things that you get to do in those cities that, hopefully you're coming back soon. Um, so there's this desire to maybe stick around to, to be able to experience that again, especially if you're, uh, you know, a younger millennial or you don't have kids or you just got rid of kids and now you have a bunch of time um, to, you know, not have someone else to take care of. I think that's going to be an appeal. 
Um, but we have seen that there, there's a lot of companies are going to start allowing more remote work than they had previously because this kind of forced people to see that whether it would work or not in their companies. Um, and a lot of companies realize that, yeah, this does still work. So if people want to work remotely, maybe we should let them. Um, we're actually doing that at my company. Uh, we were mostly in, in office until the pandemic. Um, I think we had three or four employees that were remote. Um, and now we started hiring, you know, all over the country and the office is going to be optional even for the people in, in town. Um, and so I think a lot of companies are going to start doing that and it's really going to be up to the, the individuals. So we'll see a lot of movement, I think. I definitely think we're going to see a more hybrid world. Nobody's going to come into work when they have the sniffles. You're going to be right. able to stay home because your refrigerator is being dropped off or your kid has a school play or whatever it is. But I think, and, and as someone who worked in an office, maybe you can speak to this better than me. I flew every month to my previous employer's office. I did not have to. It was not a function of my job. So mm-hmm. I could spend two or three days with my coworkers, report some, record some podcasts, have some dinners. I found the FaceTime the single most valuable part of my career and also the single most enjoyable. Like I wouldn't want to go to an office five days a week, but I can't imagine not if there are other people gathered in an office wanting to be there some of the time. How do you feel about it? Having been in your very, very white room for the past year. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm a little torn on it, honestly. Um, I feel the same way. I loved the social aspects of going into the office. You know, we would do group lunches on Fridays and and we allowed dogs. So I got to see lots of different dogs all the time, which I love. Um, so, and I got to take my dog and he got cuddles from everybody. Um, but I also actually live about an hour away from the office without traffic. Um, so getting 10 hours a week back has been really great for me. Um, so I think I agree with this hybrid, um, aspect of it that I'll probably go into the city and go to the office, you know, on maybe once every other week or so, just to get that social aspect and, and, um, get to see people and you get that kind of collaboration that you don't necessarily get over zoom, um, or Slack or whatever you're using. Um, but I think that there, there's definitely a benefit to, to having the option, as well, especially for people like me, where I was spending a ton of money driving back and forth and, and a bunch of time. I, um, I totally understand the commute aspect. I, I commuted from Hartford to Boston for a year. Uh, we, had, we had intended to move, but the Boston Globe was put up for sale on my first day working there. So <laughs> didn't didn't seem like a great time to move to an expensive city when your job was insecure. No. I will say, I totally understand the value of getting that commute back. I have the opposite. I miss the six or seven hours a month I got in a plane where I just had time to myself, whether that was to work or watch movies. Are there any other trends you're seeing among millennials or in the housing market as the final question here? Um, let's see. I've put you entirely on the spot here. That was, that was, that that was, Um, that was so very unfair. Um, I think the wider trends are that we didn't really talk about, which is kind of interesting, is that people are, um, because of the seller's market and the, the competition among other buyers, um, people are getting into bidding wars a lot more often now than they were uh, pre-pandemic. Um, so we're seeing an interesting trend of people, like if you want a house and you're in a, a hot market, which is a lot of the bigger metros right now, um, you basically have to buy it at the listing price or offer more 
Um, and you're not going to get as many concessions from the seller because there's, you know, five other people in line after you trying to buy that house. And, uh, um, and I think that's what's driving some of the things that we talked about where millennials are buying sight unseen or um, buying fixer uppers and things like that. So it's interesting. And I'm, I'm interested to see how long this type of thing lasts and whether the housing prices stay inflated. Um, and that could, be real, that could be really tricky, right? Like, because you get emotionally tied in. My wife and I many years ago had a house we loved. It was totally the wrong house for us. It was too small. It was on too many floors. We had a bait, like it didn't make any sense, but we loved it. Yeah. And we lost a bidding war. Mm-hmm. And retrospectively, had we gotten it, we would have paid too much money for mm-hmm. not something that was going to increase that quickly in value. With that, I've been talking with Francesca Ortigan. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell our seven investing audience here a little bit about Clever Real Estate? Uh, it's a company I'm familiar with because you've sent me press releases for, I don't know, a, a bunch of years, but it's yeah. not necessarily one that's front of mind for everyone watching. So why don't you explain what the company does, a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with me. I am a data scientist for Clever. Um, so I actually do a couple of things I analyze a bunch of data, we do surveys, we um, take census data and try to look at trends, um, you know, in demographics and the housing market, kind of all sorts of stuff. Um, And I work with our engineering team uh, to make our website awesome. Um, So I kind of have a a few hats there. Uh, Clever is a real estate company. Um, We are a referral service, essentially. Um, So we have a, a bunch of agents, uh, real estate agents across the country who work for a uh, flat fee or a percentage. um, So you don't have to negotiate your um, realtor fees. Um, So we match people based on what type of agents they want. Um, Agents that we know do really well in in your neighborhoods or in your price point. Um, So we kind of take out that the hassle of having to search for a great real estate agent and having to negotiate realtor fees. Um, and we do that across the country. We're located um, in St. Louis, though, our headquarters. That is a very important part of the process. We got very lucky. We bought a small vacation place here four or five years ago and just randomly a, a mother-daughter real estate team. That was awesome. They then sold that condo for us uh, a year later at a pretty significant profit, found us on the place we lived previously where uh, we needed to rent it for three months so we could finish selling our house in Connecticut in order to buy it. That is a tricky transaction to pull off. Was able to do that, then helped us find where we are now and hopefully will successfully sell my condo. So I don't think you can understate the value of getting matched to a good real estate agent. I'm speaking to someone who has sold or bought, I'm going to say 18 homes in the past uh, 22 or so years. So moved quite a bit over that time period. Francesca, Thank you for doing this audience. Uh, I don't, again, I don't know if you're watching this in the seven investing podcast or on seven investing now, wherever we choose to use it. We appreciate you watching. Thank you. Thank you. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.